0: champagne sharks this is uh t and go to twitter if you want to follow the show at champagne sharks but go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks to become a patron and you get access to all the back episodes uh, you get double episodes per week And you also get other perks like newsletters and show notes, which we are horribly behind on, which I'm going, I'm going to get on. And also go to YouTube and follow our YouTube channel and our live streams, youtube.com forward slash champagne sharks. We've been doing, um, daily streams so we hit a thousand subscribers and we're actually pretty close but there's a lot of good game and discussion in those and we have with us kenny as a co-host what up
1: guys what up i'm finally back on and um good to be back and i am back on twitter so if you want to find me on twitter you can find me at lazarus lives x3 so lazarus like the character from the bible lives x3
0: Great, and we have a special guest with us, uh, Frank Woolleyson III, uh, Doctor Frank Wilson III. If you don't mind, um, just letting the people know who you are, what you've been up to. Great
2: to be here, and Frank is just fine with me.
0: And um, yeah, yeah, just just tell the people um, who you are, what you've done, what you've been doing.
2: Well, I have. I live in Southern California. I. I have written three books. The first one was Incognito, a memoir of exile and apartheid, that first came out at South End Press in 2008. And uh, that half of that book dealt with my time in South Africa. As um, I first went there as a researcher in 1989 uh, for six weeks, and then six weeks in. in 1990, having won a literary award to write a novel, I ended up staying through a state of emergency all the way, uh, almost two years past the all-race elections, and I was the second black American to hold elected office in the African National Congress. Uh, it would be, my position would be like um, a political commissar of a large county, uh, say, for example, in, the, in, a, in a party. And I did a lot of other things. I worked in the underground as well. And so that book is structured that every odd chapter one three um seven etc would be one three five for example would be about my time in south africa and then the even chapters Go to my time growing up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, in an all-white neighborhood, and later in California. So that was my first book. My second book was published in 2010: "Red, White, and Black: Cinema and the Structure of U.S. Antagonisms." And that's the book. That's a critical theory book, um, which is very different than the memoir. It's what's called an academic monograph, where I actually lay out the argument, the assumptive logic, and the uh, groundwork of Afro-pessimism, which is a theory that uh, was not actually started by me, uh, but a a group of people actually began this narrative, excuse me, interpretive lens uh, as a way of articulating what does it mean for Black people to suffer, and how is the structure of Black people's suffering irreconcilable with the structure of all other people, whether Native Americans, Latinx. Uh, white workers, etc. And then this book, which came out on April 7th, 2020, is simply called Afro-Pessimism. And this was my attempt to fuse two languages, uh, the language of of creative nonfiction, storytelling with the language of critical theory, into one weave, one book, and to really uh, lay out the case for Afro-Pessimism for people who probably are not in graduate school and uh, would not pick up my second book, for example, and people who did not pick up the first book. And the stories of my life in this book are very different. Uh, A writer named Paul Taylor in the Washington Post called this book, at the level of stories, a prequel and a sequel to Incognito. So there you have it. I'm chair of African American Studies at uh, University of California, Irvine. And uh, yeah, I'll just kind of leave it there for the moment. Uh, you've had a pretty interesting career,
0: especially um, radical stuff with, and being in South Africa. And I was curious, what took you over to South Africa? Was it more like you felt like you were going towards something or you were trying to escape something here? <laughs> <laughs> or does neither does neither quite apply? It's
2: probably both, actually. Okay. Uh, you're very perceptive. I mean... Uh, yeah, I I, I I, honestly, so to make a long story short, uh, in the in 1974 to um, 78, the winter quarter of my senior year at Dartmouth College, when I was actually kicked out of Dartmouth College with three classes left um, to graduate, I had always been studying international politics with a focus on Southern Africa. Uh, And my minor that was in the government department, many people call it poli-sci in different schools, and my minor was European philosophy. It was the only philosophy that was there at the time. I was really interested in the uh, South African situation, but my my kind of research focus as an undergraduate was on the revolution in, at that time, what was called uh, Rhodesia, and,, um, I thought that uh, I had a I had a romantic kind of, you know, idea about what all that was about, but I also was suffering uh, a kind of anti-blackness that uh, doesn't get, at, at least in the '70s, uh, a lot of uh, play and understanding, which is the, which is the kind of mental anguish from micro and micro, macro macroaggressions that even black people who are middle class suffer as they're being told they are so uh, lucky to be at an Ivy League school or so lucky to live in a white neighborhood, and I just felt, you know, that to live uh, would be to to live meaning to express myself, to be myself, that I would have to, in some way, live outside the United States. And that was just a kind of vague notion. I thought I'd go to Zimbabwe, uh, Rhodesia at the time, uh, work in that revolution, it it was a dream that never happened, but um, at least I would live in a liberated zone, is my my thought. Um, Fast forward to 1988, and in that period, I won a lot of literary awards for my creative writing. And one of those words was the Jerome Foundation uh, Award for, for Creative Writers. Uh, and the, the book that I was writing was a novel which imagined uh, a Dartmouth graduate going to South Africa and uh, being involved in a struggle. Uh, Zimbabwe had been liberated, of course, at that time. Uh, so that's what got me there to begin with in the process of those two six-week journeys in 89 and 90 i found that south africa was very different than Zimbabwe. Um, there's very little vegetation it's very uh industrialized and urbanized and it's not the typical images that we have of africa i became engaged to a south african woman and came to new york city to do a master's in fine arts and fiction writing at columbia and the dream was that we were just going to leave in 1991. We know we were going back and forth because her family was there. But in 91, we we're going to leave and go to Amsterdam and live there for the rest of our lives. But she got so sick of the uh, racism in New York City because as a black South African, she believed that what they were told, that there's a better life for black people in America than in South Africa. And I kept telling her, no, my dear. <laughs> This is the center of hell. <laughs> and it's funny
0: because a lot of Americans like to go to other places to feel like they're escaping uh, racism
2: there. Yeah. And what you find when you go to other places is that you're in the same situation. But but I think that... Yeah. Uh, so she left. No, I'll, I'll, she just yeah, left. Okay. She just had it up, you know, before it was time. And I was left in New York City for a few months, and I just had to go to South Africa. I I didn't go for I did not go honestly for a noble reason. I went because the woman I was married to at the time just had it up. Left. We were living in Washington Heights at the time, and um, I said, "Okay, I'll be here for a year." But um, her sister was put under house arrest right before I got there because her sister's partner was in what's called the Azanian People's Liberation Army and was wanted for transporting guns from Zimbabwe into South Africa and explosives. And when her sister was put under house arrest, uh, they took away uh, my uh, first wife's travel documents. So we could not leave the country.
0: So, so you, you, your travel documents were taken away and you were just kind of, I mean, was there any place you wanted to go at the time or at the time were you just like, hey, this is where I want to be. I'll be okay for the next couple of years.
2: <laughs> like, you know, I acted through those five years with integrity and I'm happy for what I did. But I'm going to tell you very honestly, when I got there, I thought, oh my God. Uh, every day is worse than the day before. And the only thing mm. I like about wow. South Africa... <laughs> I told you, wow. the only thing I like about South Africa is an international airport with daily departures. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Man, you know what's fascinating about
0: what, what it is? I feel like, uh, you know, people like the hell that they know versus the hell they don't. So it's like she had her her racist hell, but it was, it was her racist hell. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. And she could tolerate... She could tolerate it more than she could tolerate America, but for you, it was like reverse, you know? That's, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. I know, like, uh, back in the days, people used to say that with uh, the South, like some, I remember I was reading some um, memoir, I can't remember what it was now, but it was something with some, a black person from the North had their cousin come up from the Great Migration, and they thought they were going to, like, really love uh, New York, but they couldn't take, like, the New York-style racism. The up-North cousin was like, how how are you, like, um, finding this worse in the South? Like, you know, but uh, the cousin hated him more and wanted to go back home. The story you told me kind of reminds me of that that story I read that short story about you know so, um, the reason I asked you that question about if you're going away from something versus going towards something because I know a lot of people like have stories like that where they're either trying to uh, escape like anti-blackness here or they're going toward what they think is a utopia and just like that phrase goes like no matter w- where you go there you are i feel like a lot of people come up with the realization like no matter where you go like their anti-blackness is you know and yeah. i i got that sense a lot from your book uh that you kept kind of having that type of realization and the reason why i asked you that question because i was wondering how much of it was disillusionment with expecting better from where you were going versus just thinking anything has to be better than where i just left i know it's like a distinction without a difference you know but i don't know if my question is making sense to you
2: uh it does make sense my situation let me get a little water my situation was a little weirder than that (laughs) weird makes good radio so go so go with it yes okay so i'll just tell you honestly uh because i you know i'm 64 years old now and i no longer really care about um looking noble or ignoble from my days in my 30s Um, there was just a lot of mistakes that I made, but at the, at, at the level of emotion, um, I dug being in South Africa for six weeks in 1989, not because it was a great place to be, but because, um, the Jerome foundation is in New York city and they're a very prestigious organization that had used to fund, um, emerging filmmakers uh, through through these uh, filmmaking contests. And they, they actually funded Spike Lee's first film called we, we Cut Heads. And so the year that I won it for writing was the very first year that they opened up a new category for creative writing. And so that was a lot of money that allowed me to kind of live in Johannesburg in a way that I could not live if I was uh, black South African or black without money. Now, I will say this. Uh, as you, I, I tried to get an uh, entry into a bed and breakfast place and ended up in a fisticuffs fight with the owner's two sons because she was telling me we're not multiracial. And it was 12 midnight. I was coming from the airport and she was kicking me out the door. Um, so I should tell your listeners that in those days, if you were not if you're black, you could not actually stay in hotels and, um, and uh, lodgings in the urban center. You could find someone you knew out in Soweto or something like that, but I didn't know anybody when I first got there. The only way you could do that in a hotel is if you had had what's called um, the honorary white stamp in your passport, which you yeah, which you got in, uh, at the Washington, D.C. uh, South African Embassy or the consulate in Los Angeles. If you did not have that stamp in your passport as a black American or a black Canadian then you would be subject to the laws of ordinary black people on the ground. And I'll be very honest, I did want to stay in a hotel (laughs) (laughs) but I did not want to get an honorary white stamp in my passport. And so since I did not get that uh, I didn't really have a way of staying in a hotel and because the fight in the lobby was so raucous um the woman took her boys off of me i mean i say boys they were like 18 20 you know and i was 33 and she put me out in the back which was a, like a little concrete hovel where the domestics uh, uh slept but they were gone for christmas um not christmas they were gone for some reason they're just empty July. July is the the middle of winter, the the coldest month of winter. And she made me eat in the kitchen, so I could not eat in the dining room uh, because she made it very clear that she had in the rooms upstairs uh, a contingent of people who were executives from Siemens Corporation. It's a a German kind of like IBM. And she couldn't sully the, the atmosphere with me eating at the table with the guests. You know, I had to take that because I didn't have anything else anywhere else to go. So that's why I lived for six weeks in this wow. cold-ass place uh, in the back, like a little cinder block room um, with 40 degrees at night, you know. Uh, so I never really thought that going to South Africa was like the exile that of, of, of nirvana or happiness, I imagine going to Amsterdam and living on a houseboat would be. But the first two times I went, uh, six weeks in 89 and six weeks in 90, I had good American dollars, and so even though I couldn't get lodging, I could buy certain comforts, right? But when I moved there, I had no money, $500, and a letter of recommendation to get a teaching job from Edward Said, but that's all I had, and all of a sudden, and I knew what was going to happen, and it did happen, I mean, my situation spiraled so that I uh, lived the kind of economic life of a black South African, and I was not really ensconced in the black American expatriate community when I got there in 91. When I say that black American expatriate community, I mean there were 100 black people from the United States living in South Africa, homeowners or renters. I don't mean people coming in and out. And um, I got to be friends with some of them, but most of them were there to uh, get over in some way.
0: By get over it, like what do you mean?
2: Well, what I mean was like they were kind of like a professional class of black Americans and they were not oh I see political radicals. So they knew like it's nineteen ninety one, we don't really know that in three years there's gonna be voting. People say two years, some people say ten years, but they knew that we could get in here and do some things in the corporate world faster than we could in America, for example.
0: Uh, I see. So basically, they weren't going over there to Freedom Fighters, to Reform, or anything like that. It wasn't adventurism. It was just like, the same way some people go, go to Dubai because they can get a contract, get a type of job that they might not be able to get at home.
2: I would say that's true for the majority of people. And then by the time 1993 rolled around, that number of living people who are black that are not passing through for six weeks or whatever had gone up to 300. And I would say almost 90% of the 300 were carpetbaggers like that, you
0: know. Um, did you say carpetbaggers? Because you just... yeah. Catholic okay. Guys. All right. Okay. Cause, cause for some reason when you said it, some static just crackled yeah, in. Yeah. So, that's, that's I thought. Cause God didn't like yeah. me saying
2: that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And, um, it was, you had a pretty interesting time. Like one thing I found interesting about it was, I mean, to get involved in politics there and do all those things, what was your goal with that? Were you really trying to, I mean, what, What took you to that? Because I know at first you you were kind of hoping to get something uh, academic to do. And actually, I'll leave the question open-ended. Like if you could just tell us about your time and your goals and your experience in South Africa.
2: Well, every minute of my life since the age of 12 has basically been divided between a kind of minor or major revolutionary activity on one side and just normal life on another side, like going to school, getting a job, and um, and every period, Even when I was a stockbroker for about eight years in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, at night you know, I'd leave the office and the brokers would be going to happy hour to get drunk and stuff and spend their money, and I would be going to the Loft uh, Center for Literature and Writing in Minneapolis to teach writing or to be a student, or I would be going to meetings of the Mozambique uh, Liberation Support Network because there was a revolution in, revolution in Mozambique at the time. So, um, and the novel that I was writing, you know, from 89 to 91, never got finished, was about two black kids uh, in their senior year in high school One was rich from Midtown, and one was poor from Harlem. And the rich one was a woman who was black but got involved in Weather Underground. And the poor one was a black kid who was a guy who got involved in the Black Liberation Army. So I've always been thinking, meditating, or some way involved in politics that are about overthrowing systems, not reforming them. And uh, it was just kind of a natural progression. I arrived, I was in South Africa to live in '91, I got a job teaching comparative literature. The very few days later, when it was supposed to start, I was fired on the very the day before classes started because my syllabus was too radical. It had the uh, teachings of Edward Said on it, the Palestinian uh, professor from Columbia. And um, I was working as a waiter. I was teaching creative writing at night. And one day, uh, I mean, like <clears throat> maybe it was even before I got fired. Like a few weeks after I got there. Uh, a person from the African National Congress knocked on the door and my wife at the time was across the street at school. She was a law student and uh, he came in and I said, why are you here? He said, I'm collecting membership dues for your wife. And I knew she was in the party, but I had kind of forgotten. I said, I'm a black American, but I want to overthrow this system and I'm, you know, politically motivated. Do you accept foreigners? And he said, we're internationalists. We accept anyone who wants to work against apartheid and and he was a communist uh, like me so he said and build socialism so i just joined and uh, rose up through the ranks. It was just a natural thing that I would do anywhere in the world.
0: So it seems like wherever you were, you were kind of always having this double life where this kind of nice you were straddling of, you know, material world, like working in finance, working in uh, restaurants, like, you know, what you have to do to feed yourself, the radical or bohemian world. You know, I know ideally a lot of people like to think you have to choose one or the other. I, I meet Marxists and leftists who say, oh, you should never buy a stock, you know but a lot of people don't have that uh, luxury not to, I mean, to just do that. So I was wondering, did you ever have get grief over that? Was that a big thing back your day? Like when people, when you would go to the loft or different places and people would hear, oh, wait, you work as a stockbroker during, during the day? Like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You I, know, a- I, know, I know
0: now people still, still act that
2: way. Yeah, you struck a nerve. Um, there were times... When, uh, to give an example of a day, so you're selling stocks, it's just an ugly, ugly profession, Um, but it got me more freedom and more money than what I did when I first got out of college, which is working in a commercial bank like um, at those in those days banks like Chase and Citibank they could not sell stocks there was a law called Glass steagall so the only people who could sell stocks were like Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch Drexel Burnham and then the commercial banks had to do their thing like with mortgage loans so I was working in mortgage loan uh right after I got out of Dartmouth I, I did I went back to Dartmouth after I got kicked out for two years and I got my degree and I came back to Minneapolis and did that but I didn't like it I didn't like corporate culture and what I really want is to be in a place where i can work and uh, the white people just leave me alone and i thought that being a stockbroker where you have to be your own center for income generation um as opposed to it's you know commission driven as opposed to salary driven that i would just be able to be away from the culture of finance but in it not of it and make the money that i needed um But it didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, There were conflicts. I mean, I would come to work with a book and brokers around me would be like, are you stuck up? I mean, do you think you're better than us? You know, you're reading all the time. Just that nonsense, you know. Yeah. Or they would come around to collect money every year for the united way and i would say well i do give to charities but i do not give to the united way because i think it's a right-wing republican front and because most of the money goes into generating uh the stability of the united way and not to the projects and people that they say they're going to have it and the sales manager would come down on me like a ton of brits like you don't have an option dude you're going to give to the united way because we're going to have 100 percent participation in the merrill lynch office of minneapolis <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, and that's, and that's a big thing with corporate culture, trying to force this raw, raw camaraderie that doesn't really exist. Everyone's miserable to be there, but <laughs> you have to pretend that you know, you're know you all happy to be there. I remember when, when I worked at Winlof, Love, uh, it was a miserable culture, but they were so intent on us having this summer outing. Uh, every year and it was it was miserable like you know and uh it was all the people that hated each other but just at uh at a park but they called it like a morale building team building
2: exercise it was... <laughs> you know exactly what i'm talking about yeah and then after work you know everyone's going to happy hours and i don't really I, I don't drink anymore at all and those days i only drank wine but i wasn't really into these dudes you know and i was the first black stockbroker in minnesota So I was very visible. And I would just be, like, hatting up. And they'd be like, where are you going? We're going to the club, you know, whatever. And I I said, you know, drinking martinis with you guys for, like, two hours just because there's free hors (laughs) d'oeuvres, you know, that doesn't, you know. But if I didn't have time to go home and change, then I would go to the loft or the Mozambique Support Network uh, walking in with a Brooks Brothers suit, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. just be, like... Okay, so it took a long time for people to get used to me. Um,
0: so, 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 so basically, uh, you wouldn't have time to change, so you would have to show up sometimes at Mozambique with your uh, Brooks Brothers attire. And stuff. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> you know, and I would do that because I wanted to. That's where I really wanted to be. You know, I am um, very good friends with the writer uh, David Murra uh, Sensei, Japanese American writer. And I can remember, you know, those days he was hotter than a pistol in terms of prize money and publications. And uh, he was, there were very few people of color at the loft at that time. And he just thought that I was a kind of bourgeois, you know, finance guy. And so it took him a little while to warm to me. And that was just the impression. I mean, you're walking into a place where everyone's in jeans and the hair is long and they've got notebooks and reading poetry or fiction but you just come from a place where everybody's hair is short and they're all white, and they're in these uh, either three-piece suits or tailored Italian suits for conservative Italian suits, and so it was, it was rough. I did that, I think, for about eight years. You know, a weird, a weird similar experience I
0: had was when I used to uh, add a lot of friends that were into the arts, and uh, in college I was uh, very into the arts and writing workshops and stuff. But when I Got my first job as a lawyer. I was... My friends would still invite me to these outings, right? But I went to state. I went to state university in uh, New York, and I, I grew up blue collar. Like my friends were like blue collar, but you know, I had this job where I had to wear a suit. So I went to my friend's uh, photo opening at the Rush Gallery, which is Russell Simmons' uh, brother's gallery. And I took my cousin with me, who had a job out of college. I and mean, we both showed up in suits. And all the black people at this like hip hop art event. It's, it's all these black people, at the hip hop art event they're all like oh look at the suits the suits you know the suits are here the suits you know and then I was like yeah yeah okay yuck it up you know and then I went to a second event and it was the same thing and I was like oh I can't stand these people but my friend who was showing in the gallery I went to college with and he's from the same area where I lived in Queens one day like we were he took me to like a third party with his people but this time It was in the evening and I changed and I dressed down, but uh, we were sitting there and everyone was uh, even dressed down. They were still dressed down more than me. They had like this hip hop attire, really like leaning into it, you know? Mm -hmm. And then we were just sitting there and then he told me, he goes, you know, all these people went to Princeton and Yale, all these (laughs) schools, right? (laughs) And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. These people are all like just costume playing. Like, like they're all like from richer families than us. Their parents are academics. And I, and I find it so interesting how you know the uniform matters so much, but you never really know what it says about who somebody is. So all these people were taunting me. They all ended up being uh, <laughs> like like generations of academics, or you know, they all were were in Ivy League schools. And uh, one of the parties was at the house of this guy, and I ended up finding out who he was later. He got he got really big. Uh, I think his name's Kahinda. Wiley, he's this artist who paints these hip... Uh, Ken, you might know who he is. The guy who paints those Renaissance-style pictures of no, hip-hop. I've never heard of him. Oh, if you saw his work, you would see it. What he does is he takes... Uh, it's a very interesting project. He takes these hip-hop artists or a hip-hop pictures like Big Daddy Kane, but he'll paint him like Napoleon. Mm. So, or, or he'll paint it in an old um, Renaissance style. But he just does that over and over again. For, for example, um, he painted Obama's portrait. He painted Obama's portrait with the flowers in the back. Um, My friend tried to work with him, and he got fired for being too radical. Like, this guy has a product and a machine, and he churns out this thing. And it's this mix of highbrow, lowbrow. So he puts, like, uh, hip-hop people, but in in Renaissance-style paintings. And the art world eats it up.
2: Well, wow, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I I was just thinking about that because of your love story and 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 I, I just kinda wanna ask that that's kind of what I asked that because I know how sometimes like people really put a lot of uh, emphasis on the on the uniforms that you uh, wear.
2: Exactly.
0: Yeah, but uh, your your theory Afro pessimism. Before I even ask you what it is, I want to ask you what it's not because I feel that it's one of the most to me mischaracterized things. Like. I've never seen a I've never seen a theory uh, so subject to strawman as yours, but not just from antagonists. But I feel like even and maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe they understand it better than I do, and I'm the one who's a misunderstanding. But even by some of its adherents, there are some people who kind of take Afro pessimism and become what I call um, Afro depressives. Like it's like they don't want to leave the house. They just um, kind of take it as a cue to give up on life. But they they seem to almost love it for that reason. And I kind of want to get your feel on that, on both. Like, what are, are the misperceptions or, or misconceptions, both from people who don't like your theory and people who do like your theory?
2: Well, I, I I'm not sure that I can answer the second part very well uh like what are the misconceptions. I think you could help me. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I might be able to because because the 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 misperceptions by uh the academic type of people who dislike it, those appear in like major journals and maybe and major and major publications. But the second type of thing I'm talking about is stuff I see in social media or talked about among students and stuff. So you might not be as privy to seeing that. So I'm I can not. explain the second part to you. Yeah, I'll explain
2: the second part to
0: you after you answer the first part.
2: Okay. I, I think that uh, the academics and political activists who read theory and um, in general and don't like Afro-pessimism uh, suffer from what Jared Sexton, Jared Sexton is a professor here at UC Irvine, and he's one of the architects, main, main architects of Afro-pessimism. I mean, it wouldn't have come about without him and Sidia Hartman and, and David Marriott uh, and myself. And they suffer from what he calls the anxiety of antagonism. And the anxiety of antagonism is like a a feeling in the gut or the chest when uh, the mind, especially the unconscious part of the mind, experiences or meets a problem for which there is no conceivable solution. And so the minute that you say, A, the human is is a construct, and the human is a parasite on the black, in other words, in order to be human, one must not one as an individual, but the structure, the formation of the human, must know itself as human by knowing itself not as black. And that the way that that can happen is that the the black body or black flesh rather must be continuously subjected to what we call gratuitous violence. In other words, it's actually like the killing of George Floyd or Nina Pope or um the Sandra Bland and other people is not a form of discrimination. It's these are lynching rituals which are necessary to the rejuvenation and sustainability of human life. In other words, there's a there's a larger meta meta M E T A meta need that humanity has, which is to constantly subject one body to a kind of violence that can happen without that body breaking any rules in order for my human body, if I'm not black, to be understood to myself and others as human. Because it's not that I can't get that kind of violence that George Floyd got, um, but it's that if that were to happen, there would have to be a reason. So I would say that when people confront a situation in which... Uh, ac- academics who have who have prided themselves on explaining rationally why subjugated people are uh, violently mistreated or the paradigm of violence, and then they come up with an argument that the violence against black people is what we call pre-logical. Number one and number two, there's nothing that the black populace can do to show itself as disciplined and acquiescent in order to stem that violence which is very this is why we try to disaggregate this phrase that everyone uses called black and brown we don't like that phrase not because brown people don't suffer but because the structure of their suffering is based on violence that is contingent upon mass brown or individual brown transgression And that's not how black people suffer. And so I think that for decades, maybe even more than 100 years, uh, left-wing academics have tried to explain um, the suffering of subjugated peoples and the violence that subjugated peoples experience in a universal way, like all people who are poor suffer as a working class or women, you know, and they haven't actually um, allowed themselves to, they haven't actually had their feet held to the fire to make them explain how did this word called human become organic and natural, when all other words are mere constructs. So we have done that, and I think that um, that has produced what is called the anxiety of antagonism, because if you have a problem for which there, there is a solution, because it's constructed, but it's gone on for 1,300 years, and because it is the problem of global civil society that means that in this bubble, what we call uh, in critical theory terms, the episteme, the episteme would be like a dome of the Super Bowl, and inside the stadium is all the things that can be thought. Well, you cannot think beyond the human, but you can destroy it as a construct. You just can't say what's on the other side, and no academic has been able to. Um, I mean, most, let me rephrase that. Most political writings come to you with two components. The first component is called diagnosis, or description of the problem. Say Marx's Das Kapital, the description of how the worker suffers, or psychoanalytic feminist writing, how the woman suffers. And then it has another component, which is called cure, or prescription, which is, what would freedom look like on the other side? And Afro-Pessimism says, on the other side of freedom is a world without humans. There will be people living and breathing, but the idea of what it is to be human not be there so we cannot actually predict or scenarioize what that would be and people freak out because they freak out for two reasons if they're not black then they freak out because afro pessimism suggests that even if you suffer under the boot of white supremacy you are structured as an antagonist as a perpetrator of anti-blackness and asians and native americans and uh, latinx people and non-black LGBT people and non-black women just can't get their head around that idea that we are the victims of patriarchy. We are the victims of homophobia. We are the victims of of white supremacy, and we also are the agents of anti-blackness. Can't get their heads around that. Just don't accept it. Um, and the second one has to do with the impoverished nature, the impoverished nature of what it means. To be a student in a British or American school and the impoverishment has to do with what we call empiricism and um, and problem-solving British and American education has always linked problems with solutions and that has really um, short-circuited the thinking abilities of revolutionaries in both Britain and America but it's also meant that people uh, are not emotionally equipped to deal with a conundrum until they have some idea what the solution would be. And right now, this country's going up in smoke because the problem of anti-blackness is um, out there being lived out in the open in a way that people really didn't think was, was possible. And you can't call this, you can't call the score the end of the game for a black revolution. The way you can call the score the end of the game for working class revolution. You have no idea what's going to be on the other side of that thing.
0: Something that I think uh, really kind of bothers people too is, oh, I, you, you did an interview on uh, the cows on the context of white supremacy a couple of years ago. And I remember at the time, I was always using the words white supremacy, white supremacy all the time to discuss. And then you said something that I remember really moved me, and you were talking about um, how white supremacy, and if I'm butchering the paraphrase, by all means, feel free free to interrupt, but how white supremacy is kind of insufficient to describe what black people face, and you brought up how like you know the Arab slave trade, there was a certain treatment of black people, a regard of black flesh that uh, predated the European slave trade. what I want to ask you if you can kind of expand on if you remember what I'm talking about, if you could kind of expand on expand on that because I think this one that's an example of what you're saying scares people, but I also want to say, would the removal theoretically, if, if it was theoretically possible to Remove the concept of white supremacy. Would that somehow cure? I know it's a very glib question, but it's something that people ask me. Like, uh, would it somehow cure the anti-blackness in other races? Like, like there's this kind of idea where that other races are anti-black because they're absorbing on uh, what white supremacy is telling them. And, and and by that and by that and by that nature, if you took away white supremacy, somehow it would undo a lot of anti-blackness and non. You know, like, you know they're getting negative images exported, things like that.
2: I hear you. I know. Yeah, I don't uh, have any real truck with that. Um, the Arabs were not suffering white supremacy in six from six twenty five A.D. to you know twelve hundred A.D. Uh, may, maybe when the Crusades started happening, they were suffering white supremacy. But you know, as they were developing, as anti blackness was developing um, in Eastern Africa and across the the sea. <clears throat> you know, there, there, weren't, there weren't white people at that point in the world. Um, and, and before the incursion of the Arab slave trade into East Africa, there were not black people either. So the people who lived in Africa um, emerged as black through the, the imposition of social death what Orlando Patterson calls his description of slavery social death, which is general dishonor, meaning we dishonor you in your body prior to you doing something dishonorable. You're dishonored at birth, general dishonor. Natal, natal alienation, meaning you may think in your mind you have a grandmother and siblings, uh, spouse, partner, and children and grandchildren, but... In our minds, in the paradigm, and we hold all the guns, you are a relationless, sentient being. You're a sentient being without relations. And the final thing is, the final meaning of social death is gratuitous violence, meaning you are our fungible and accumulatable thing. Uh, We will love you, in quotation marks, sexually, whenever we want to. We will beat you um physically whenever we want to in other words you are the violence that is imposed upon you is because you live in a structure of violence where you are available to us for whatever reason at what at any at whatever time and it was and, and and when a paradigm imposes those three elements on a being it's not just that it's bad for that being but it's good for the people making the imposition because as they move through the decades and the centuries, they then be, can can develop their identities, their culture, and uh, their, their what we call anthropological accoutrement, which is the way to have families, the rules of marriage, um, the rules of relationships, um, social etiquettes, all that develops in contradistinction, but through a symbiosis between the Perpetual gratuitous destruction of black bodies. So, if you say that is the structure, and then you fast forward 1,300 years of building that structure, and in that 1,300 years towards the middle end of it, those people then become the victims of European white supremacy, you really can't say that um, if you end white supremacy, their attitude to black people and their relation to black people will change for the good. No, because anti-black violence builds the world because the world, through that violence, begins to understand itself as a place where sanctuary is possible. And so it's much more complex than saying, oh, if Arabs uh, are no longer bombed by U.S. imperialism, which is horrific, um, if Latinx people are no longer uh, treated with the imperial violence of the u.s government which is horrific that something magical will happen and those people will be no longer anti-black that's a little pollyannish in my view because anti-blackness is not an attitude it structures the world now by
0: structures you're kind of talking like psychic structures yeah
2: is that is it right so
0: we see structures because a lot of times structure and structural is a popular term now. Uh, it's being used all the time. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren talks about big structural change. Like it's such a buzzword. Now, when people talk about structures as in political structures, but you're kind of talking about like in a collective consciousness, in a collective, collective psychic psychic structures Uh, is that would you say that's a a correct way to put it
2: i would say uh i would say it's both and elizabeth uh, elizabeth warren as a prototype is talking half ass
0: (laughs) yeah of course because
2: because because even the even the type even the type that she
0: claims to be talking about is not really Yeah. uh, yeah she's not even there
2: so let me give you an example a concrete example for your listeners um in 1988 um some some interesting things happened but i'll tell you one thing um, the state of California passed a law called STEP, S T E P, called Street Terrorism, the Street Terrorism Enforcement and Protection Act of 1988. Very complicated law, but one of the things that boils down to is that it says that if a person uh, commits a crime, say in in uh, West Hollywood, and uh, you come, you you know, put them in handcuffs, go back to the crib where he lives say in compton and uh you find that in the crib he has relations with other people duh like mother father sister brother right (laughs) yeah yeah of course then those people are by extension supplemental perps to the crime that's number one number two it says the crib the apartment or the house remember it's in compton and the crime was committed in like West Hollywood or somewhere, but the apartment becomes a crime scene itself. So let's think about this for a moment because what that means is that um, the person who's so-called criminal is in cuffs and being prosecuted. Then you find their relations back at his house, they're in cuffs and being prosecuted in a supplemental way uh, in relation to the same crime. And then the house itself is a crime scene which means when, 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 the, when the, and you're a lawyer, so when, you know what when the police declare something at a crime scene, that means all your shit can be sold at auction you know <laughs> of course of course uh, uh, uh that i think they call that in california
0: all all in all in laws yeah, like, exactly okay yeah everything is um everyone and everything is all in like you are just friends with somebody who is uh doing criminal stuff and you're in photographs with them uh you're suddenly an extension that's right of and this criminal organization
2: and when we say when we and we talk, we talk about the structure of the Of the unconscious, and I don't want to pick on Elizabeth Warren, but a person like that is talking about the structure of empirical things that they can see and feel and touch and do. What we're saying is that something happened in the state legislature in Sacramento, which is along the same psychic collective view that would happen on a slave plantation and it went down like this there was a big uproar over so-called drug infestation and trading and they passed this law to 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 deal with this but the law is racially coded so that you cannot actually find someone driving down sunset boulevard in a bentley with uh blonde hair blowing in the wind with the top down and a kilo of cocaine, and then go back to his crib in Beverly Hills and arrest everyone else. This law is targeted at the black community. Yeah, yeah, I, th- that's true. I never thought about it, but
0: the all-in idea of for for white people would just be mentally unfeasible. Unfeasible.
2: Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so when they thought of this, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the way they do laws in California is is they have the first iteration of a bill. And the first iteration is obviously, is coded racially in a way that's obvious. And then when it comes to referendum, they take away that coding. But the coding exists because they send the bill around to prosecutors and social workers and judges and things like that. So they've got it already in. And this happened with Prop 21. Uh, 10 years later, 11 years later also. And so what I'm trying to say is that in the libidinal, libidinal economy, which is to say in the collective unconscious, the state legislature imagined black people in the very same psychic structural way as we were imagined in chattel slavery. Number one, everyone is a criminal, regardless of what they do or don't do. That's why you have slave patrols in the 19th century. Number two, all black dwellings are really not, sanctuaries of civil society for do, for domestic for domestic safety all black dwellings are simply in the libidinal economy that is the collective unconscious are extensions of the master's prerogative i'm going to repeat that all black dwellings are extensions of the master's prerogative simply put in the unconscious all black dwellings are simply slave cabins and so nothing essential has changed in the fantasy projections of America for the past 400 years. It's just that it has to be, the fantasy projections have to be shot through a prism so that they are slightly disaggregated, so that they don't look as stark as the statutes in 1853. But they have the same effect, number one. And number two, there's one group of people in the world that cannot have their bigoted uh, fantasy projections turned into law. There's one group of people in the world that cannot have their bigoted fantasy projections turned into law, and that's black people. So you've got everyone else having varying degrees of what we call subtending, which means that I have a fantasy it is an anti black fantasy. If I'm white, I can subtend that, meaning like right angles of a triangle. I can hook that fantasy up to a barrage of state violence to give that fantasy what we call objective value, to make it real. It wouldn't be a bad thing if the state legislature said, we think all black people are always already criminals and we think that all black dwellings are always already slave quarters and that's just what we think. That's our fantasy. No, they think that, they say that, they write that, and then they can deploy 21 different kinds of policing organizations to make that fantasy real i cannot deploy the bloods and the Crips to do anything with my fantasies but you know
0: that's the reason why there's um a big thing that's popular in the academy now particularly in the realm of uh, intersectionality is this idea of kind of rendering uh, something that we say all the time of rendering the black community as just the white community in blackface you know and that you can just take white dynamics you, you can understand white people and i I'm not talking about some of the more nuanced intersectionality but more the pop culture type of uh watered down intersectionality that a lot of people use in the mainstream media as opposed to in the academy even though i think in the academy they're still a little bit guilty of this where they create things like um what do you call it uh, black patriarchy or black male privilege and this idea that within the black community the black men can operate uh, with the same impunity and power and a an oppression the white male might be able to within the white community or throughout throughout the whole world and you'd have constant arguments which Kind of feel like common sense where you say what structures, what powers can a black man call on to oppress anybody? Which is kind of
1: like what it's, you were it's saying. It's always straw man arguments, though. Always yeah, it's always so straw, straw man. man. We, we, you, don't, you don't have to make straw man arguments to show white patriarchy. It's, it's, written in, <laughs> it's written in books. It's on your dollar bill. So you know, but to show black male patriarchy, you have to create almost like a movie because they put it in movies, like the Harriet Tubman movie. So
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they made a fake character in there. There's something called the black privilege checklist that they came that they came up with the black male privilege checklist and and every time we have these arguments it um this checklist gets thrown at you and it's very laughable like like these are some of the privileges um a privilege that like black men have is is um the black church but that's not really a... like. You don't have to go to church. Yeah, you don't have to go to church. A lot of weird... Okay, here it is. I don't have to choose my, my race over my sex and political matters. When I read African-American history textbooks, I will read mainly about black men. When I learn about the civil rights movement and black power movements... Most of the leaders that I will learn about will be black men. I will have the ability to define black women's beauty by European standards in terms of skin tone, hair, and body. Like, there is all this stuff, but it's all at the end of the day. First off, a lot of it's not true, but even if you were to stretch it as being true, it's all stuff that white people allow Yes, black people that, yeah, exactly to, to yes. do. And you mentioned that in the book about how black people are only allowed to do what, or be what
1: um, the white imagination allows for them to to be. Exactly. You know, You know, it's interesting you said that to you, the way you just said that, because it reminds me of something that the comedian D.L. Hewley said. He said, the last place a black person wants to exist is in a white person's imagination. <laughs> that's, that's
2: very true. It, it's yeah. true.
1: And I, and I might be, I might be
0: mis, misphrasing what you see in Afro-pessimism, but I feel like you're kind of saying that we almost have no choice the way society is structured but to exist in a, in a white, white person's, person's imagination, imagination, yeah. imagination. Which I think is a very hard thing for people to kind of deal with or what we know a lot of people and kenny and i always talk about this a lot of people think that descriptive is almost prescriptive so for example kenny and i always talk about these people who are pro-black and if you talk about white supremacy They'll be like, I don't know about you, but ain't the white man supreme over me? You know, right. maybe white man supreme over you, but this is right. the kind of
1: idea that I can just will myself out of all ego—they're going to ego, you know. ego themselves, ego themselves out of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or or, or, or white supremacy is a choice. That's right. a phrase that like, I've heard. Like Kanye
1: West, slavery was a choice.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> what can I say? If you have that much money, you you probably you probably don't know day from night anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so there's this guy Nikhil Pal Singh he's a history professor at nyu and stuff and a lot of people when your afro-pessimism article came out the new york times you know
2: sorry can you tell me what you mean which one you're talking about
0: oh oh well which one uh, um in the new york times it says in afro-pessimism a black intellectual mixes memoir okay and theory no i i to
2: be clear because uh uh kiana professor kiana ross from northwestern just wrote an op-ed piece about two days ago, which really oh, I that one. hit home about Afro-pessimism. And the one you're talking about was an interview done with me about my book. Yes. Okay, so go ahead. I'm with you.
0: Oh, I wish I knew about the Kiana one. I would have actually um, read it for this interview.
2: Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I, ju- I just saw it a couple of days ago. And I don't think you're on my mass mailing list yet, so I'm very sorry. I posted it on Facebook uh, on Wednesday when it came out, but I'll send it to you when we get off the here's, phone. Here's, here's a fun fact:
0: You're the first guest I ever asked to be on the show. Uh, I just couldn't get you. It took me this long to get you. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I, uh, I, I've been trying to get you for a while. But I'm glad it worked out this way because I think what's happening right now the timing is actually uh perfect
2: I don't know what you mean I'm the first guest uh, this is the first show you no you've done other shows Oh no no but when I
0: started this show I emailed you very first I, yeah
2: oh. I emailed you like
0: a long a long time ago a long time ago but the show was like uh just started cuz I heard you in the cows and I was like wow this is uh heavy and I want to oh. um uh, talk talk to this guy. Okay and then when I saw that you're promoting a book I said okay this is my chance <laughs> Okay that's Cause great. Because I, I know when people, are, I know when people are promoting books, it's a great, it's a great time to get them. Yes. But I mean, I think it worked out because I feel like I was able to sit with your work a little bit longer by not having you here. One of the, one of the uh, things that we talk about on this show, and it came to me from reading uh, Gramsci's Black Marks and listening to you on. On the cows is um like we have this theory we talk about it in the show uh, we call it uh, Bob Watt be your blacks on bottom whites on top and how how just about everything in the way the world works and how people default think blacks on the bottom and whites on the top and people can kind of deal with a lot of stuff as long as you promise those two things will remain the way they are but once so it's like everything in the middle is up for grabs you can reorder just about anything in the middle but the, the weird thing is that black people very much buy into that as well like even when they kind of fight for them on their own behalf they're still very and a, and a good example is the whole reparations debate for example when the reparations debate happened some of the things that black people were arguing uh to say why they shouldn't get reparations very much short. how many people uh believe you no know, they would say things like oh if um black people get reparations everyone's gonna have to get reparations and so wait
1: <laughs> why would you think that like like why unless are you, you think conversations that other people when they get reparations don't have <laughs> Exactly Yeah They don't have those conversations
0: But but to say that You almost have to think that, that you have to stay in the bottom So everyone has to move up accordingly But also a lot of other races Thought that Like for example Once reparations Started becoming feasible To black people In the cultural imagination Because we started having uh, Congressional hearings about it And we started having Newspaper stories And coverage and, and arguments about it Once it became a national debate Whereas before It was treated as so ridiculous It wasn't even worth The national debate But once it became Like rem- remotely feasible, there was articles about gay reparations, yeah. Latino reparations, and it was almost like everyone thought black people get these reparations. They might even leave be us. second from the bottom. They're going to leave us. If, they get, if, yeah. we get re- if we
1: get cash reparations, they're going to leave us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're going to leave us. We won't have us, anyone or... to kick around anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah or, even, or, yeah,
0: or even the second from the bottom, that just throws off the whole thing. Who's going to who's gonna be the new bottom? Like, you know, right. and uh, yeah, but a lot of minorities are fine with white people being on the top. Just don't let black people jump over me. Yes, Exactly. Exactly. And, and you're seeing that now with these all these Latinos all over the place, deputizing themselves to uh, beat up and kill uh, so-called looters and protesters. The Latinos in Chicago, I know. I know in New York and uh, Washington Heights there was a bunch of stuff. I don't know if it's hit L.A., but I know in the past L.A.
1: Um, a lot of Latinos have been exercising their anti, well, anti-blackness. In, in, in Los Angeles, I mean, the, the gang scene is anti-black. The Mexican gangs, they go against blacks simply be based on race, not even based on territory or based on gang affiliation. It's based on race. And that comes from the prisons. So
0: Yeah, and, and, and they'll even go against like, civilians. You, you don't yeah. have to be like a black gangster. You could be like a mother with her kid and stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a certain antagonism for white people, even though they complain about like uh, racism for white people, where it's not quite the same. And you had a story about your Middle Eastern friend. I forgot exactly where he was from. It was what? Ramallah. It was kind of a very... What's the it, word from? Uh,
2: Ramallah in Palestine.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. So it was a Palestinian friend and a very... It seemed like the way you wrote it, it was almost uh, traumatic. But I felt like that story was very indicative of what was happening with a lot of these non-black people of color or these Latinos who are deputizing themselves as almost like an honorary MAGA. It's almost like you have to push off of... The bottom to get to the top and what's on the bottom is blackness so you have to kind of if, if you're trying to push yourself up the ladder or up the hill to get to the top like what you're pushing off of a lot of the times
1: it's like a, it's like a gang initiation how many how how? show us how much you can harm black people and you can be an honorary right white, white person
2: that's exactly what it is
1: yeah yeah uh, would you mind uh, retelling that story uh from
0: from your book Cause i thought it was very um formative
2: Yes. Uh, what had happened is we worked together as uh, security guards at the Walker Arts Center Museum in Minneapolis, and uh, one day he got, a, I guess, a phone call or a letter saying that his cousin had been killed uh, in the process of Constructing a bomb uh, to be used against the Israeli Defense Force in the Second Intifada. So the cousin broke, blew himself up, and we were just sitting on a grassy knoll uh, overlooking downtown Minneapolis as uh, he was mourning, and he this began to tell me stories about what it's like to live under Israeli occupation, and when and he was kind of staring in the air and and half. Uh, almost weeping and uh, aware, but not quite aware of my presence. And he said, it's really humiliating to be at a checkpoint. You know, the hours that you wait in the hot sun, and uh, then the way the Israeli soldiers, you know, run their hands up and down your body uh, to search you is extremely humiliating. And he says, but the humiliation is much, much worse when the soldier is an Ethiopian uh, Ethiopian Jew. And I thought, that is very interesting. That's the force of his unconscious. Coming through to say that uh, it's worse to be frisked by a black person than to be frisked by an Ashkenazi Jew, essentially a white person. And what made it uh, what we call pre logical is the fact that uh, there's so much anti blackness in Israel that that black soldier is suffering from anti blackness and uh, probably in Israel uh, as a refugee of some kind. In other words, the structure of anti-palestinian racism does not is not orchestrated by the group of people called ethiopian jews who live there they're not the agents of it and yet in my friend's unconscious he feels as though he is more oppressed by uh the black implements of israeli terror than he is by the white israeli architects of israeli terror terror and so that just goes back to my statement before about the Street Terrorism Enforcement and Protection Act. You know, in other words, just like the California State Legislature, who sees a drug problem as a black problem, uh, when in point of fact the drug problem in L.A. is a white rich problem, uh, and the, those aspects of the drug problem that are a black problem were created by the CIA and you know Iran Contra, um, where freeway freeway. Uh, uh, Ross was just an implement. I mean, in other words, he's seen his oppression as essentially the encroachment of a black planet just as the his white oppressors in the american government see their oppression as the encroachment of a black planet which is i think highly fascinating and disturbing
0: you know what i thought of when i read that story right was i i was thinking that i think for a lot of people and it goes back to like the blacks on bottom whites on top thing and that people feel secure like they understand that world they think that's how uh, it always has been and always will be they think that's just how it's supposed to be even though black people to some degree like even when black people advocate for themselves they kind of advocate for they kind of advocate a lot for uh better conditions on the bottom of the slave ship kind of you know in a lot of in a lot of the things they advocate for even if they don't realize it but you kind of see they kind of accept the idea of overtaking people or whatever is not really what they think what they're thinking about but when i listen when i saw samir's story in in the thing i feel like it's almost an existential issue as in um if a white person is treating me that's bad and they're not supposed to mistreat me but i understand that i exist beneath them i just want to fight for them to stop mistreating me but if i'm put situationally below a black person i actually don't know who i am anymore like like what is a palestinian at this point if it's below a black person you you know like it actually becomes an, an existential issue like like i think people like there's some people who are so comfortable with um white supremacy and they almost look to be deputized under it or it's something that they could work toward in a way but once you're below a black person like um it's almost like you you almost feel like annihilated like like you don't exist like like your whole existence is is negated and, it, and it's that's why i think in a way it was he didn't even feel weird saying it to you like they almost think it's common sense like that he can't even see the insult in it a hundred percent Exactly. He's, yeah, you what it scares it me. The, yeah, what scares me the most is how many black people kind of think that way when even things that they advocate for like they advocate for tokenism, seat at the table, um a lot of black people kind of think of what they're supposed to be fighting for is the right to be the manager of other black people. Like
1: right. if I could be inside the house, maybe I could be the mammy or well, as long as I don't get, as long as I don't get the whooping, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, as long as I don't take the ass whooping, I'm we'll, we'll be fine. Um, yeah. You know, and, th- and that's what you we see it in these corporate offices. You see it in it ain't even in just in corporate uh, positions. You see it in nonprofit jobs. I mean, it's all over the place. Where if you know that if you're that one black person, um, you know you're the one that gets and. It, Like me and Tia's have this conversation plenty of times. Black people, for some reason, do things even though even what white folks don't ask them to do. So we'll go above and beyond the call of duty to smash out any other black person that's you know, causing a little bit of ruckus or something, you know what I mean? Or or might be asking too many questions about the way people are being treated. You know, there might be racism on the job and, you know, one black person might be like, hey man, that's not right. And then the other black person will come in and just go above and beyond, you know, to get rid of that person.
0: And sometimes they get fired. Kenny always brings this up. Sometimes a black person will get fired by a white person for the anti-blackness, because they went above and beyond. They're yeah. like, Even I wasn't asking you to do all that. <laughs> like, right. like you went a little too far. <laughs> you are gonna,
2: gonna bring the heat on us. Like
0: that. That, that happens sometimes.
2: One hundred percent. Yeah. And this is the this is the the real nitty gritty of Afro pessimism because in the psychoanalytic register of our analysis, one of the things that that one of the the I'll just I'll simplify the argument, uh, but hopefully it won't make it simplistic by saying that um, anti-blackness as a psychic structure is not out there. It actually forms the unconscious of everyone, including black people. It's just that the performance of it only benefits non-black people. So this is is what makes it a very, very difficult thing to get one's head around, because uh, if if your listeners really want to understand this, uh, they should look at my book, Afro-Pessimism, and uh, note the places where the name David Marriott comes out, comes in. And then go to the back where there's uh, an index and, uh, and and end notes. And you can see how I'm quoting from him. He wrote a book called On Black Men in 2000. And one of the things that he was saying was that um, the black unconscious has this problem in that uh, the ideal... To, to, to move the unconscious towards a cure, which is to say to move the unconscious towards um, the realization of, a, of an imago, of an image that uh, is whole and um, soothing and um, non-anxiety producing, is to move the, is to move the unconscious towards, toward, uh, away from the image of blackness and towards the image of whiteness. And so what we have is a situation which our own unconscious is always overdetermined by this war that even if we are Afrocentrists and um uh we're dashikis and everything, there's something at war in our own minds in which our unconscious understands that it is impossible to be black and revered or respected. So the unconscious has this dual thing going on where it, the imago or the image of blackness is always something that the unconscious is, is fighting against. But it cannot cure itself of this fight to um, develop into itself as the image of whiteness. So um, um, you cannot love yourself as white because even when you try to do it through those actions of anti-blackness that you all have been talking about... Um, you're still black, and you are made, this is like forced through the violence, of the violent imposition of culture, the violent imposition of, of civil society, the violent imposition of the workplace. You, you, you cannot love yourself as white, and you are forced to hate yourself as black. So, what do you... I don't want you to speed
0: past that. I think that's a powerful phrase. You said you can't love yourself as white. But you're forced to hate yourself as black. Yes. Oh, that's pretty. That's pretty heavy. I I didn't want you to just just, just blow past <laughs> okay. that. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Keep 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 going. Keep going. Well, that's
2: that's really that's really the the nuts and the bolts bolts of it. Because then you then you begin to when you understand that uh, then you begin to realize just how um, deeply what we call the structure of anti-blackness is vertically integrated. In other words, it runs up and down from the smallest point which would be like the psyche to the largest point which would be like um, global civil society and global political structures and uh, a lot of the people that you talked about who uh, do not like have for pessimism academics they They actually can't take on the full problem of the argument, which is both out there and as y'all's examples have shown us, in here, out there, and in here at the same time.
0: I think a problem with your theory too is is that it might be a little bit too too meta because it's not not just about thinking about the problem. It's thinking about how you think about the problem. So it's almost a... it's almost like metacognition. It is in a way, is. which is I think very challenging. One one thing I've I've done a lot of therapy in a short amount of time because I've, I'm uh, taking psychoanalysis, as in like uh, I'm in psychoanalysis, and and uh, Kenny's been doing the uh, therapy, and and we always like compare notes and stuff. But I remember one one of the things that my analyst tells me is talks about uh neurosis mm-hmm. pathology and things like that and he says like uh you can break down neurosis to basically like the mind taking on an impossible goal but that it almost knows it's impossible but uh it's compelled to take it on anyway in that trying to trying to make the impossible uh possible whether it's like making your childhood good you know when you're an adult and you can't go back and change your childhood. Like like that's an example of an impossible goal or trying to um, change things that can't be changed and have to uh, be let behind or make someone who doesn't love you, love you. Like, you know, like all neurosis kind of comes down to the inability to accept uh, an impossible goal. And what you just described, I think perfectly describes like, the neurosis of being black as in you can't love yourself as white L- like an irish person or an italian person or a jewish person can work toward whiteness or pseudo whiteness um but out of all the races like the race that most can't work itself toward whiteness is um blackness even physically we're kind of physically posited as the total opposite of whiteness more than any other race you know exactly so you can't love yourself as white either physically or um or psychologically but you're forced to hate yourself as um a black person but i feel like a lot of people especially strivers especially bourgeois black people etc because i think there's a certain amount of acceptance of being black among people in the hood that you can't really find as much in like the academy or in in um the corporate world or in the political world because i think they get elevated enough out of the muck even if it's an illusory uh elevation that they start actually believing the impossible goal like okay i know i can't be white but maybe in a way i kind of can be white and i think there's a lot of neuroses in the um so-called assimilated black person's world in the bourgeois black person's world i mean e franklin fraser wrote about it other people have written about it but i kind of want to get your take take on that if you agree with that? Disagree with that? If you disagree, why? I,
2: I, I, I agree at first blush, uh, most definitely. And one of the uh, ways in which I would support that is by going back to 1989. 1989, yeah, when uh, this bourgeois contingent, uh, led by Jesse Jackson, uh, decided to uh, tell the New York Times and everyone else that the name Black had to change um to uh, african-american and i was living in uh, uh harlem at the time and one of the things that i realized through just talking with people and uh through polls that were happening in the uh, media was that uh, most of the people in the inner city of chicago and new york and los angeles and oakland did not want to move from black to African American, it was a purely middle class push, and it was a push by uh, the highly placed notables of the middle class. So um, there, and and the language of the demand that Jesse Jackson and other people around him were making was ex- exactly the language that you're talking about. This language of access, and we are Americans, and and we are a culture, and um, it was like they did not want to assume the antagonism that you all and I have been talking about that that comes from this word black, you know, because if you say that, then you're recognizing that this is a formation that was structured as a paradigmatic for formation through violence, and it was it was structured up. Before that, there were cultural formations called Ashanti, Buganda, Maasai, Shona, and this paradigmatic formation was created through violence. And so it was like, rather than embrace that and see what kind of revolutionary juice we can get from embracing the antagonism, they wanted to run away from that. And the first gesture was to change this name um, to make it more like everyone else, like Latin America, Latino America, etc. Um, so yes, I, w- I, would, I would, on one level, give you that. But on another level, I would say that there's something else happening in that uh, every strata of black person has the problem that I talked about. It just manifests itself differently. And here's how I could, here's what I mean. When I first got back from South Africa, I taught in the Compton Unified School District uh, for a little less than one school year. And one of the most interesting things was that I saw the most horrific forms of police violence against the kids in that school district worse than i had seen in soweto when i would do creative writing exercises for uh, these kids in junior high school and high school like fantasize just write f- freely about the future you know uh, almost none of them could imagine living beyond the age of something like between 18 and 25 there was just it was it was as though life would stop there in their unconscious you know that they didn't think that they could that the conditions were so violent that they couldn't even imagine a life as a lawyer, a life as an uh, artist, or it was just like it would end there. So that's number one. So it was, it was like they're in a real super violence that is really horrific. But the next thing is that when you say imagine what you want to be, I'd say well over seventy percent of them wanted to be FBI agents or LAPD officers, the very kinds of people who had their foot on their neck. So. What I'm trying to say is that, and that's not like a condemnation of them, that's not like saying y'all better get a better consciousness, because in point of fact, the Kool-Aid that you drink in the ghetto every single day is a Kool-Aid of between four and sometimes eight hours of television. We live in a police state, so everything you get on TV cathects, meaning makes the mind psych- psych- psychically invested in the well-being of of a police officer you cannot turn on the tv without having nine out of ten shows making you care for the well-being of your murderer and so that's a form of hallucinatory whitening that exists in the minds of ghetto kids whereas the minds of black college graduates have another form of hallucinatory whitening which is what you've been talking about in the way that we act and uh Horrifically towards each other in corporate America. So I'm saying that experientially it's yes very different, but I'm not willing to say that someone in the ghetto is completely outside of that. I would say that there.
0: I want to make clear. I wasn't um, saying that, but I'll I'll let you finish because there are some people who do probably think that, but I'll, I'll let you finish. Because I think you should address that point anyway, because I think that point does exist, and then I'll clarify a little more what um, I did mean. Well, I
2: think I think that the good news is where I started, which is to say that the minute the uh, black bourgeoisie tried to go for the okie doke and uh, change our name without consulting us at the grassroots, you found that uh, for a good eighteen months, uh, like eighty nine, maybe not less than, maybe less than that, eighty nine through like end of 90 black people were up in arms about this um didn't really matter because the um you know the corporate world worked with the black bourgeoisie and changed it anyway so i would give kudos to the black working class and black lumpen elements who were like hell no we black you know but i'd also say yeah i i I think i think to this day people still don't really
0: adopt african-american among themselves in those strata
2: yes Okay, and now you can say what you what. How may 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 I misinterpret it?
0: Well, I think all black people, to a degree, are kind of made to be neurotic about race. Like, if we're keeping this in the psychological realm. I mean, a whole bunch of different psychologists talk about the three neurotic trends. They give them different names. Like, for example, Karen Horney said there's the compliant type defined by a tendency of moving toward others, the aggressive type, which involves moving away from others, and then the detached type, which utilizes a strategy of just of just not being around anybody and being in there and trying to detach from reality and then alfred adler had the same thing but different words he said he called it overcompensation uh he called it surrender Mm -hmm. and then he called it avoidance you know but it's the same three things they correlate to fight flight or freeze in the biological world it's like a psychological version of that and i would say that black people In the corporate world or whatever, in those type of bourgeois atmospheres, they're in that avoidance phase where it's like, hey, instead of saying black, call me um, African-American. That's an example of the avoidance (laughs) phase. Yes, exactly. you know or they might like somebody might overcompensate you know like and i'll be the person that's like hey uh maybe white supremacy rules over you but ain't no white supreme over me you know um uh, you can you can believe in that i believe in black privilege you know like, like somebody might be doing that like overcompensating thing uh the bootstraps thing and then i think what you describe is surrender right but surrender is like a hyper acceptance it's it's acceptance but it's acceptance to a toxic degree so it's like that person has so so when i say that person accepted their blackness better than the bourgeois person uh it is better to accept or face reality than to deny it but they kind of uh take the reality of the situation like i think to some degree they're more intuitively in line with what afro-pessimism describes they've just kind of surrendered to it as in like um this is just what it is and i'm going to so i can't imagine myself being x y or z uh, mm-hmm. the, the way the way you described, it. or I'm gonna accept the images that are on that TV that tell me that being a rapper or being a cop or. Being a sports person is my only way out. Like what the white man thinks for me is the only way out that I can be good is what I'm going to um, internalize. Well, actually, that part's not fair because I think all of us are guilty of thinking that what the white person prescribes the way out at some point in our lives.
2: We can't help it and we need to be kind to ourselves when this happens um, so that we don't um, end up condemning ourselves while we're trying to work out of it you know what i mean
0: yeah yeah exactly but i think some people think that you just describing this stuff is akin to condemning the the same way if kenny or i say um white supremacy is real, someone's going to be like, oh, so you're saying, um, you know, black people just give up, you know? And it's like, no, oh, <laughs> I'm not saying that. But but li- yeah, lying think- about your situation is not help anything either. Exactly.
2: That is the point. That is the point.
0: Let me ask you this. Based on how you view, I feel like right now, a lot of what you talk about is being tested or exposed. In real time, uh, a lot of it from some minorities are turning against um, black people, while some people seem to be waking up. Like, I've, I've seen actual Latinos and Asian people and different people say things like, No, this is not black or brown. This is a black problem, and it's time to start treating it like one, which I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. I was very surprised. I saw that on social media. Um, I saw gay people saying, uh, yeah, I have problems, but being black is a very unique problem and you know, it's it's nowhere close and we really and there's a level of violence that's visited on on the black body. And I was like, very surprised to see that being said. I'm used to everyone piggybacking on our movements. And I don't know if these just isolated cases that people are just blasting on social media, but it seems like something about what's happening right now is really kind of laying a lot of stuff to, of what you're saying in, in this book, Bear, and the court. Uh, sorry, uh, you want say something?
2: No, no, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you.
0: Oh, oh, what, uh, the question I was going to ask is, from your vantage point, looking at people in the academy, looking at people in the news, looking at different things, what do you think people are kind of getting that, that, that you know, heartens you, you know, that is in line with Afro-pessimism, and what parts of Afro-pessimism do you think people would be better off knowing you know things that you see that they're getting wrong. That you're like, man, if they read if they read my book, they'd realize that like, their prescription right now or their analysis is is way off.
2: Well, I think that uh, <clears throat> I don't know I don't know how to answer that because I I don't know if I'm heartened. I, I so first of all, number one, I agree with your assessment of of what's changed in the voices of non-black people on the left. That's that is significant. And maybe ten years ago, I would be heartened by that. And maybe I should be. I don't know. That's an open question. But I also have to say that look how much of our blood had to be spilt, spilt, spilled before that could happen. And so it's as though if we're not dying, the world isn't going to really take up the first principles and the assumptive logic of Afro-pessimism and think seriously about it. Why Afro-pessimism as a critical theory is on the world stage now is precisely because There's been so much death, murder, in such a short period of time. And, most importantly, there's a deep, deep deep-seated fear that um, uh, black rage will proliferate exponentially like a brush fire without a clear destination. And that scares people into uh, dialogue. Now, does that dialogue and the um, reiteration and acceptance of some of the ideas of of Afro-pessimism lead to structural change on those people's part. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that will happen um, because I think that to get to the second part of your question, to really fundamentally understand what they think they understand, they really have to read and digest the psychoanalytic critiques and engagements of Afro pessimism to um, begin to understand how what they say they feel is only part of their psyche. What we call the preconscious, and the preconscious can be changed. It's the warehouse to the conscious mind. But there's the unconscious that is uh, not as easily intervened in and changed. And it is. And when we come back to the first part of our of our of our conversation here. What I'm trying to say is that so much of the violence that we as black people suffer both structurally and in terms of rituals is violence perpetrated by unconscious fantasy projections um, like the Street Terrorism Enforcement and Protection Act, uh, like Proposition 21, which um, says that any kid 14 years of age or over who commits a felony can find Him or herself or themselves at a fork in the road where the prosecutor, the judge, and the social workers decide okay, go to the left to juvie court, okay, or go to the right to adult court, which will bring you to San Quentin. And it's really uh, the decision to go to the left or go to the right, just like the decision to pass such a draconian law to begin with is based upon the degree to which blackness is embodied in the child. And until people start thinking about that, um, then we're not going to really get at the deep deep analytical, which you call and what I agree with, the, the meta analysis of Afro pessimism.
0: One thing that I find interesting and touches on something that you brought up earlier is um about I forgot the context you brought it up in this conversation, but it was kind of about this black tendency to kind of I think you might have been talking about bourgeois corporate minded black people to kind of avoid avoid um, conflict or have this kind of self pacifying instinct or or trying to just avoid like like the just buying into certain aspects of the psychic structure. One thing I was thinking about that I've been seeing a lot is these so called narratives of outside agitators, right? With these <laughs> riots. Yes. So let's talk about outside agitators and I get why white conservatives want to talk about outside agitators It's a very old narrative it goes back um carpetbaggers uh you know what it the the carpetbaggers from up north were um routing up the the ex-slaves during um during reconstruction i mean that was basically a big part of a birth of a nation you know like getting them uppity getting them um riled up to rape white women and and to get political power and and whatever it wasn't gone with the wind as, as well uh the narrative of um communists and jews riling up black people in the ghetto and whatever like, like I, I get why right-wingers and racists uh have that narrative it's a very old narrative that they had that black people don't mind being oppressed like that blacks on bottom whites on top thing black people don't mind being oppressed it's a natural place and it's these uh, white agitation forcing them like people think of that about john brown there was a movie about john brown called santa fe trail it's in the public domain now but you can find it on youtube but in that movie john brown is this villain trying to force these black people who just want to be slaves into being free and they don't want any parts of it and the and the good guys are trying to save the slaves to go
1: back to slavery and then the slaves thank uh the the good guys after yeah you see you see a lot of that today with uh you know like we always say that there's a battle between white racists and white supremacists or white extremists and you see the white extreme, especially online, they're online arguing with the quote-unquote white libs, shit libs, whatever they want to call them. They come up, they come up with all these different names whenever they see white people supporting black people for black, for black rights, whether it be Black Lives Matter, whatever it is, if it's for black people, you see the extremists arguing with the so-called white liberals, as they call them, and they're angry with them. They're, they're, they're coming up with, um, they come up with anything, anything that they could to make them look derogatory, whether they want to talk about their vote, what, how they vote, uh, where they live. Um, oh you must live oh, all, the, all that stuff has always happened in those democratic cities well, that's a yeah yeah, yeah yeah exactly and, and,
0: and both of them think that their job is to prove yeah. that the other one is the actual racist exactly. and if that's enough they can prove that uh, they're the good ones so it's like yeah yeah. the, the, the right wing ones are calling are saying oh it's uh left wingers like Antifa and the anarchists and the communists they're the ones riling those black people up but those black people just want peace they want to be what they're happy being oppressed But the liberals, on the other hand, uh, they're racist and believe in blacks on the bottom in a different way, which is they say, oh, this is white nationalists and these undercover cops. Uh, doing false flag operations, and the black people just want to be like Martin Luther King. Like, you know, right. uh, Like in a, in a low-key way, they're both saying the same things. The black people are okay with incremental progress. They're okay being at the bottom. Well, one has a gun in your face and the other one has it at your back. <laughs> uh, n- n- yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, and the one who has it at your back is hugging you from the front. Exactly. So. So the the conservative uh, is saying, hey, they're happy being at the bottom, but they want to be at the bottom with our foot on their neck, you know? And then the liberals like, oh, they're happy in the bottom, but they just want us holding their hands and walking with them while they're on the bottom or giving them hugs, you know? And singing, like, we shall overcome. And I get why both of them are doing that. Both of them are deathly afraid of breaking that natural order. Blacks on the bottom, whites on the top. The liberals trying to scare it off with love and hugs and listening. You know, I'll I'll listen to you all day. Right-wing persons trying to stave it off with the military and invasions but there's a class of black people and i'm really trying to wrap my heads around them who are just as invested in the same narrative yes and that is what i find very interesting like, they, like they're trying so hard like, like one of these black women was like a black lives matter woman and she's like look this is what we told you black people are here trying to be peaceful it's the white people going crazy and then someone pointed out there's three out of those six people overturning that car are black
2: like she was trying <laughs> to lie by this video <laughs> clip and say there are no black people in it like you know it's a dangerous game to play and uh, the, the danger is, it, is not just getting caught in a lie. The danger is that when you pose the question and make peaceful protests virtuous and violent protests um, and, you know, you demonize it. Then you have to ask yourself, what am I doing as a black uh, politico? And the real answer is you're actually working for the system uh, through a, uh, with, with, a, with a program, even if you don't know what you're doing, a program of anger management. It's not just anger management, but you are containing the revolutionary imagination of a black insurgent formation. And the worst part about it, or one of the worst parts about it, is that you're also, by default, um, criminalizing and demonizing the actions of all the black revolutionaries who have come before. Assata Shakur, for example, Harriet Tubman. So I think that um, it's really important for us as black people to remove ourselves from what I call a moral, M O R A L, a moral economy of good and evil, a moral economy of innocent and uh, guilty, a moral economy of peaceful or nonviolent. Uh, I don't want to be, I don't declare my innocence. I simply refuse the court. I refuse the court. I refuse policing as a structure. I'm against policing the police. I'm not against police practices. And uh, that, I think, speaks more purely to the radical black imagination than a mishmash of mealy-mouthed words that try to uh, wiggle through some form of acceptance in, of my position to non-black people. I refuse. I refuse the the peace non-violent. Sorry, the the non-violent violent dichotomy. I refuse the outside agitator. Uh, you know, economy. I just refuse, I refuse the question. It just, it really doesn't, because what all these people are saying is, we're right back to what the three of us have been talking about with respect to, you cannot love yourself as white, but you're made to hate yourself as black. They're saying, a question has been posed to me by the media, by the white clergy, by my black clergy, by the Congressional Black Congress. You know, I've been, I'm being held to a question am i good am i bad am i peaceful am i non-peaceful uh, am i peaceful or am i violent and the proper answer is to refuse the conversation not to enter it and this is what um a lot of black leaders fail to do
1: yeah it's
0: like it's like um you have to step out of the out of that framework of trying to love yourself as white being for p- feeling forced to hate yourself as black but some of these people their are only answers to double down on it it's like the Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's it's like that quote that says insanity is trying to do the same thing over and over. And that's kind of what they're doing because you're buying into this um, prescription that the person that you're rebelling against, like, like the idea of judging how good your rebellion is based on how much the oppressor that you're rebelling against approves of it. I mean, if, if battle for Algiers, uh, had that, that type of philosophy behind it, it would be a terrible movie. It, like, 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 it would be like, yeah, but, but the, this, the distinction that you mentioned in the Samir story about the struggle that the Palestinians having, uh, versus the, you know, which is about, you know, the Palestinian can break it down to land, can break it down to X, Y, or Z, but the black person's struggle is almost existential, like trying to prove that they're actually human. Yes. You know, uh, um, and, and 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 you know, this is what I think happens, right? What I think happens is if the black person's actual struggle is trying to even establish that they're even human, so it's not even like because uh, the Palestinian thinks he's human. He's just worried that he's a human being mistreated by another human. Exactly. Right, the black person's struggle. Yeah, the black person's struggle is trying to prove to themselves and others that they're even human when Samir is getting frisked. By someone who's not even determined to be human yet, now he's actually fearing. I'm actually even. I'm not just losing my land. I've actually reached a point where now I'm losing my humanness. Like if I'm sub black, then I'm not even sub human. I'm sub non human. Like it's um like, and I think that's where a lot of these angry white people at these rallies and stuff are coming from. Like I think the Trump, the spell that Trump has on. A lot of white people now, liberals and progressives—something that even George Bush didn't manage to still in white people—which is why they're all have re- rehabbed George Bush. Is I feel like Trump has niggerized everybody or created this <laughs> fear of nigger- niggerization. Like, 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 what a nigger is. Like, a nigger is something is like that word is like the encapsulation of. All that bottomness that you describe blackness as, <laughs> and I feel like what he's been doing with the Muslim bans, what he's been doing with bans on on immigrants and everything, like everybody is feeling like, hey, um, oh my God, are we going to be like uh, on the level of black people? Are we going to be uh, below black people? It's not realistically going to happen, but I feel like it's an I- irrational exaggerated uh, fear i think that's why you're seeing all these white people really turning up in these protests in the way that they weren't under obama's tenure they were happy just being led around by d ray doing prayer circles and having the npr tote bags and stuff whereas now under trump and they're already in kind of a police state under covid like covid kind of reminded them hey we're not as free as we thought we're getting curfews we're getting a black plague type type epidemic maybe you know um And it kind of goes to show you that what white people prescribe for you is not what they prescribe for themselves. They prescribe it for you because they think you're a subhuman. So it's okay for you. But uh, it's like like a white friend of mine told me. uh, She said if white kids, fathers, and mothers were dying like this, they would have burned the country down a long time ago. A long time ago.
1: Oh, they would have burned the country down 200 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Never got this far.
0: They were told to wear face masks and they brought out the guns. (laughs) They were were storming places.
2: Um, I I, I I need to probably. We wind down getting... yeah, i'm so sorry but um could we oh, oh,
0: oh, oh it's fine i was about to end it uh anyway okay. so that's fine right. yeah yeah no no i i definitely i definitely appreciate uh you coming out and yeah i mean i know it's late but uh i just want to talk to you for so long so i'm
2: glad we got a got a chance um i am too very much so i think we've hit a lot of really good issues here and it's been good to. Talk. oh my
0: god there's one last question i'm mm-hmm. going to ask yeah you. go ahead and keep it as short as you want i know it's late it's the thing kenny and i always talk about right but there's this kind of rise of intersectionality i don't know if the intersectionality that I'm seeing on social social media, or whatever, how well it reflects original in the iteration of the academy. But I want to know, like, to what degree do you think this idea of logging, lobbying onto other identities, like people saying, hey, I'm black and gay, I can't choose between either, or I'm a black leftist, I'm black and poor, I can't choose between class versus race, or I'm a black feminist, I can't between my blackness and womanhood and a lot of these people will get very irate we try to tell them that your blackness is your main problem because that's the main way that people uh define you they don't see you as a woman equally or first they don't see you as gay equally or first they don't see you as as working class uh, equally or first you're all those things subordinate to your blackness um to what degree do you think afro pessimism is complementary or antagonistic that tendency to think that if I if I can compound my blackness with something else, I can escape.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I would I would first of all, I would caution people who use intersectionality to do a little research, and and they would find out that intersectionality as a concept and a lens of interpretation or a way, way of thinking about one's life uh, is not just out there in the uh, in the gender studies world. Uh, It's not where it came from. In terms of of, uh, non-black identity, it actually comes out of uh, black feminist writing. When black feminists were trying to, we're saying exactly what you're saying. I mean, our our basic violent uh, oppression is blackness, but we do not feel that blackness is dealt with with respect to uh, enough in the literature, with respect to the multiplicity of identities that we have as women as lesbians etc. And so I think that was very productive because what it's what it what it does is it allows the mind of the writer and the reader to separate one's paradigmatic position from one's cultural and sexual orientation which is identity. And I think that when people use it today saying I won't I can't choose my blackness over my gayness they're forgetting that um, cultural identities and sexual orientation are things in a complicated way that you can choose, for lack of a better word. But blackness is a place is a paradigmatic position where you're placed. It's not it's part of your your positionality. It's not the essence of your identity. So blackness is the truth of your existence, but it's not the totality of your existence. Uh, You have other forms of identities, whether you come from Africa or Canada or uh, black communities in, in the city of Basra, Iraq, you know, those are all different identity formations, but your position in the paradigm is, is black and it positionality and identity are two different things i think american theorists don't get that uh enough have you read have you read jay sakai's settlers no i haven't i, I should uh, uh uh shoot me a link to that when you can
0: okay uh i could i could send i could email to you because i think that might be one of the few people he's an asian guy actually but i i think he i think you might find it find it interesting he kind of theorizes similar to what you do he aims it at Marxists. kind of like what you describe. he aims it as marxist to kind of tell them that um this class revolution you're thinking of is not going to uh, solve black people's problems because of reasoning similar to what you said, but I'm not going to say it's a total overlap. Yeah, uh, I'll, awesome. I'll send it over to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you when you come back, I'm not going to say if, I'm going to say when. Uh, <laughs> yes, when you, when you when. come back, we, 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 we'll talk settlers. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for coming out and thanks for um, uh, staying with us so long. I know it's late. I've enjoyed every minute of it. I was just running out of steam. That's all. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I understand. We started late and that was my fault. I pushed this No,
2: no, I've enjoyed every single minute of it. But uh, Maya just started turning into a pumpkin. That's the only thing that's there. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. Thank you too, Ken.
0: Appreciate you definitely. And uh, everyone, have a good night. You too. Again, I'll take you guys later. Thank you guys. Take care. All right. Bye bye.